0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now.
1: Church, no one likes opposition. Yet, as Christians, we must face the fact that they're going to be a real part of life at times. You go, opposition? Opposition? So I have to ask, why does God allow opposition into our life? Lord, I, I just gave my life to you. I'm following you. Now I've got all these things coming at me. I mean, I'm thinking, what purpose does God see in our struggles in this opposition? God usually helps us out one of two ways when opposition strikes us. You go, what are they? Well, he may at times shield us from a terrible, terrible storm. Thank you, Lord. Or he may at times have his face directly into it. In either case, he's trying to teach us to cling to him. And I think we must adopt the strategy of the vine. Let me illustrate it this way. The vine, guys. The vine has developed one of the most successful methods of survival in nature. It's said of the vine, it's capable of developing in any climate condition. It's able to grow as tall as the tallest trees without having to build huge trunk for its support. It can spend its energy on growth upwards because it utilizes the strength of whatever, now listen, it clings to. It grows much faster than the very tree it attaches itself to. And that's why it's able to withstand any storm from any direction. The vine wins, the vine winds itself around a circle upward. It does this so that no matter which way the storm comes from, it cannot be shaken off. Even those vines that grow straight up are unshakable. You go, why? How does this work? Well, if the vine grows on the north side of a tree and the storm comes from the north, the winds will drive the vine into the strong tree and it remains in position. Therefore, if the winds come from the south, the tree will itself shield the vine from the winds. And again, it remains unmoved. Even those vines that grow straight tend to wind slowly so that one part of the vine is always protected from a storm in any direction. The vine is as safe and strong as that which it clings to. And so we are to be like a vine clinging to Jesus. If opposition comes against us head to head, he is our shield. If it comes from another direction, it can only drive us closer to Christ. And so we still are safe. Like the vine church. We are only as strong as that which we really cling to. So cling to the strongest thing in the universe, which is God. Now, we're going to face opposition. Before we jump into our text... We are going to jump into this letter that was written in verses 6 to 24. Let us consider the impact of verses 1 through 5 that remind us that the children of Israel, as they come back into the land, if you recall, they were there for one purpose. Do you guys remember? To rebuild the temple, to build the foundation. They had been gone for 70 years, and their main purpose was to build the foundation. But here's what I want to remind you. I want to remind you that the children of Israel refused to compromise. They told the foreigners as they came in and said, hey, we want to help. We want to hang out with you. Let's just party together. It's okay. And they're like, no, 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 no. As a matter of fact, here's what they said. And I quote, you may do nothing with us to build the house of our God. So they refused to compromise. Now, I want you to remember what's going on here. In the book of Jeremiah, we learn for 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking to the nation of Israel. Do you guys remember what was going on? You go, no, pastor, explain. He was preaching a message to them, and in the message, he was declaring that it was imperative that they turn away from their idolatry. 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah is saying, please turn, and there was all kinds of idols that they were worshiping. Now we learn in Jeremiah, guys, that how this idolatry completely engulfed the people to the extent that they walked away from the Lord and they began to worship other things. You go, how's that? That? No, no, listen, listen. There's not a whole lot that's changed from Israel to us there were they were worshiping jeremiah's going guys stop stop you're worshiping idols you're worshiping foreign gods you're worshiping please stop and what it was doing guys it was it was it was taking the children of Israel away from the one and true living god guys and and they began to worship other things so what does god do god goes man i love them so much so he does something very interesting he raises up another eight nation to discipline israel there are times in our lives when we feel like God is going to discipline us. We, 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 that's okay, okay, because discipline is good. It means that He loves us. Israel was in complete disobedience. God is going to raise up another nation to discipline them, not because He's just upset with them, but because He loves them. He loves them. So what does He do? He raises up the Babylonians to come in and capture the Israelites under the leadership of not all, no, King Nebuchadnezzar. How did they get there? See, it was 490 years, guys, that Israel did not keep the Sabbath. God says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let the land rest every seven years. They disobeyed. Are you kidding me? I know God said we should do this, but listen, we got to have our crops. We got to. We got to do this. How long did they do this, church? They did this for 490 years. They disobeyed God, 490 years. And finally, God says, okay, that's enough. You've been disobedient long long enough. I'm, I'm taking action. So what did he do? He took them off to Babylon for 70 years. God took Israel out of that land so it could rest for 70 years. Well, if you recall, in our Daniel study, Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. He realized that 70 years was almost over, and he got so excited because it was time to go home. They're going, we get to go back. 70 years is over, right? Seventy; We get to go home, and he was so excited, and, 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 and he knew that the time was coming. But listen, here's what I want you to see. There are two key factors that took Israel into bondage. You go, what are they? If you're taking note, jot this down, disobedience disobedience and idolatry. Disobedience and idolatry. When it comes to the word of God, guys, listen, I understand that we're saved by grace. Good place for an amen. Amen. We're saved by grace. But Jesus also told us, if you love me, keep my commands. Do what I'm asking you to do. If you love me. And so, when it comes to the word of God, we can go, yeah, I'm under grace, but... I need to be obedient to the God that I love. And so disobedience will, well, disobedience will put us in idolatry, won't it? You go, what's the other key factor? Well, jot this down, idolatry, idolatry. See, and I'm thinking it's the same two factors that keep us from a closer walk with God. Listen, church, we're here on a Wednesday night, so it speaks volumes to me that you go, I want to walk closer to Jesus. I'm here on a Wednesday. I'm here, I want to learn, I want to grow, and I want to see God do big things in my life. But, But disobedience to his word and idolatry, guys, will often keep us from a closer walk with God. Pastor, are you saying that I'm not saved? I'm not saying you're not saved. What I'm saying is that you're not going to have all the full benefits of walking with God as if you were obedient and you took those things which are good and you didn't make them ultimate. You You didn't make them an idol. You said, okay, they're their proper place. Romans tells us what? That we, guys, we begin to worship creation rather than the creator. And all God wants us to do is worship the creator. He says, I want to bless you with all these good things. Just don't make them ultimate. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So disobedience and idolatry. That's why Israel's in Babylon. Well, 70 years are up. And Cyrus decrees that Israel can go home and rebuild the temple. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind, church. One thing we need to keep in mind. The temple wasn't the only thing that needed attention you go it wasn't here here's what we need to fill feel fill the way of what's going on here many of the returning hebrews had forgotten god's laws and they were disregarding them in front of the people you see god wanted them to go back and physically rebuild the temple so they had a place to worship but the problem was is that it was a heart issue. It was a heart issue. And so God goes, I want you to look deep in your heart and I want you to see that you're going back and you've actually forgotten my laws and you're actually disregarding them in front of the people. You see, the people needed to remember this, church, that the covenant they made with God, they needed to remember that. They needed to remember why they were in the situation and why they had gone to Babylon and why they had been allowed to come back. They were missing it. The temple, well, yes, of course, pastor, it needed a new foundation. But the people needed to return to the foundation of their faith as well. So you see, that's, I mean, I want you to see it, I want you to see it in a spiritual sense, guys. When we walk away from, from the Lord, when we're disobedient or we're worshiping an idol, and, and our walks are not close with God, Oftentimes the Lord will say, listen, listen, you need to return back to the foundation of your faith. You go, what do you mean? Well, at Calvary Chapel, we call it what? Loving people back to life. Getting them to the place where I go, okay, listen, I know you're struggling and I know you're having an issue, but our, my job is to come in and, and, and love you back to the place where, where you're what? Where the foundation of your faith is strong again. And that's what's going on with Israel right there. They're, they're, listen, the, the temple needed a foundation, but the people needed their foundation restored and rebuilt. And it got me thinking. In the book of Revelation, guys, we also see the same command given to the church of emphasis. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, 1 through 7, notice what he says. The revelation of Jesus Christ. John is getting this. He's the revelator. He's writing this down, and here's what he says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Some people feel like the angel is the pastor. We know it is a literal church here in uh, Asia Minor. We know, but we also know that it's a time period. But listen to what he says. To the, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right. This, here's what the Lord's saying. These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, The Lord says, I know your works, your labor, your patience that you cannot bear those that are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. At this plus, I would give this church an A plus at this point. Wow. Could you imagine getting a letter from God? Right. You go to your mailbox. There it is. It's just like, hey, it's from God. Ah, right. Hope it's not a pink slip. You know, what I mean, it's, it's God, right? And so he starts to write and he says, man, listen. He says, wow, I know your works. Yeah. God knows my works. Yeah. Lord, were you there Sunday? Of course you were there Sunday. You saw me. Okay. And he says, I know, he says, I know your what? I know your labor. Yeah, Lord, I've been laboring a lot. He says, you have patience. I have a lot of patience, Lord. And he goes on and he just, he just commends us. And it's just an amazing thing. And he says, listen, you're, you're doing everything so cool, so amazing. And he says, and for mind sake, you haven't been weary. And then he says, verse 4, then you get this in the letter. and He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. That's something you don't want to hear from the Lord. But what does he have against the church of Ephesus? Guys, it says here, that you left your first love. He's telling them, you left your, you didn't lose it. You didn't lose your, you left it. You knew exactly where it was and you said, listen, I've got some other stuff. I'll be back and I'm going to go over here and I'm going to worship idols and I'm going to be disobedient to your word and I'm going to do, and the Lord's saying, no, 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 here's the problem. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Now, if I got that letter, I'd be going, what's the remedy, Lord, what's the remedy? And he says, verse five, remember therefore, from where you had fallen, he says, repent and do the first works. Or else I'm going to come quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what he's doing, guys, to the children of Israel here in the book of Ezra. He's saying, he's saying, it's time to come back and rebuild the foundations of your faith. You left your first love. You left it. Think about this for a second, guys. Think about this. The only love which transcends all other love should be a love for Jesus Christ. It should be. There should be nothing. Like, well, you go, Pastor, are you saying I shouldn't love my wife? No, 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 no. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you are able to love everyone and everything else based upon your love for Jesus. And and, and a lot of people will leave their... But, but Pastor, listen, but... But, but, but the church in Ephesus was doing great, weren't they? They were, they were doing everything right. They had the children's ministry just so cool. I mean, I mean, they had screens and they had everything and the kids were having a great time. They passed out all the, everybody, they had servants and they had security and they had, that was just amazing. Here's the problem. They had left their first love. And I think it's a huge application and it's a huge heart check for us. Because at times we can go through the motions we can go through the motions. We can go through the motions of church and Christianity. But, but, but have we left our first love? Have we left our first love? That's what he's doing in the book of Ezra. Well, in chapter 4, guess what? They come home and they begin to work but not without opposition. Ezra chapter four, let's pick it up, guys, just to, as the beginning, and we'll just read through one through five. He says, now, when the adversaries, there we go, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the fathers, the houses, and he said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, no, 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 no. You may do no nothing with us to build the house for our God. But we alone will build the house of the God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them with building and hired counselors against them to frustrate the purpose all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, remember this, your attention please. Last week, we spent our whole study looking at three areas that Satan attacks us. You guys remember what they were. Number one, he he comes in like a flood with discouragement. That's one of the most used tools that Satan ever uses in our walks. He wants to get you discouraged. If you're a brand new believer here, or if you've been walking with Jesus 40 years, it's the same tool he wants to use. He wants to discourage you. He'll use whatever means he can to get you bummed out, to get you stressed. Oh, I can't. (sighs) Discouragement. The second thing he uses, guys, he uses fear. Fear, right? Oh, you're not going to try that for the Lord. Remember the last time you tried that and you failed? Oh, no, no. Oh, he wants to come in and he wants to use fear. And then last but not least, we see that another area that Satan attacks us is through frustration. They hired counselors to go, well, let me read the bu- the building plans. The building plans are not right. And you know, no, 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 no. You're putting the foundation all wrong. Dig it all up. And they were just so frustrated because they hired counselors who are not even telling the truth. And so those are the three areas we talked about last week. Now, I'm calling this message, if you're taking note, faithfulness doesn't drive opposition away. Faithfulness doesn't drive opposition away. For tonight, guys, we discover that even with being super faithful to the Lord, that doesn't mean that opposition goes away. even when we refuse to compromise our walks with God, that doesn't necessarily look, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the opposition go, oh, well, you're faithful, we're just going to leave you alone. You see, the children of Israel faced ongoing opposition from the time they got back into the land, shortly after 539 B.C., until Nehemiah got the wall built in 445 B.C., You go, what does that mean, Pastor? Jot this down, guys. Their faithfulness to the Lord did not make the opposition go away immediately. You need to understand that. You need to realize, I'm being faithful in my walks with God. I'm being faithful in my walk with God. And I still feel like I'm being spiritually attacked all the time. I feel like my friends don't like me anymore. I feel like these people are... I mean, it's just... And I thought faithfulness would mean at least some blessing. I thought faithfulness would mean at least God would, would kind of shade me from a little bit of the opposition. And we need to understand that that's kind of what's going on here. And I stopped to think about this. Their faithfulness in rebuilding the temple didn't make the opposition go away immediately. And I wonder at times, I wonder church, how we expect the world to respond to our faithfulness. How, does the, how, how do we expect the world to respond? I often wonder if we'll face opposition like we see here in Ezra chapter four. In other words, the world often plays nice, right? It offers to collaborate, not because they love God, but because they want influence and control. And I want you to think about this for a second. If you are faithful to God, rather than being, to, being faithful to those of the world and their ideas, think about this. They're going to go from a veiled opposition, right, to an explicit opposition. You go, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, here's what I want you to jot down. Here's what I think we need to grasp, right? You need to understand that Satan hates you. He hates you. People who do not worship God and give thanks to him are rebels. As a matter of fact, here's what Jesus told us. Jesus said you're either for him or you're against him. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. And so here's the thing. The people are going, God, we're being faithful. We're not allowing compromise in In the building of the temple, this belongs to you. We don't want people to come in and bring in their own influence and their own control. We're being faithful. But here's what I want you to see tonight, guys, is that that doesn't always mean the opposition is going to go away. It's going to continue. It's always going to continue. Why? Because Satan does not look at your life and go, oh, you're having a bad hair day? Okay, I'll leave you alone today. Hey, oh, you're having a rough time? Oh, well, okay, we'll just lay off for a week. He comes in and he wants to destroy you. Now, listen, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're saved. But that doesn't mean that the enemy wants to trip you up, cause you to stumble. People are looking at your life. The world is looking at your life and it wants to see if we're going to be, if we're going to be different because we're Christians. The world is looking at our lives, church, and he's, and he's saying, come on, listen, are you gonna be different? Are you gonna act different? I mean, cause I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of, of compromise out there. But you call yourself a Christian, Christ-like. And, 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 and so I wanna see, are you gonna live that life? Are you gonna live it? Are you gonna pray? Are you gonna seek the Lord? Is he gonna be your, 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 your guidance in every situation? Are you going to stop and pray? See, the world sees a lot of compromise, a lot of compromise. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? When did you become a Christian? Yeah, when I bought the T-shirt. And it says, I'm a Christian, you know, I mean, and, and. but I still like to do what I, listen, I, I, mean, I still like to do what I do, you know, I still do what I, do. I mean, I like to do, you know? But I'm, a, you know, God loves me, right? We're under grace. That is all true. But what happens, guys, is when we allow the enemy to come in and begin to influence and control us, and we start to compromise our walks with God. We start to compromise our walks with God. Let me give you a picture, just a, 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 a small picture, of what it means to walk with God. Because a lot of times you go, Ben, what do you mean to walk with God? When you take your, I'll just use my wife's hand. When I take my wife's hand and we begin to walk together, we're we're holding hands and we're walking together. This is what it means. There are times, right, when my wife, bless her heart, she she wants to look at other things. Okay, you know you know what I'm talking about. Let's just say that nothing. I go to. The mall or something, or we're at a store, okay, she may like to meander. She may like to look at this stuff, and she may look, I'm not that way, and so sometimes I walk like this, okay, and Natalie will be back there. That's not walking together, is it? But here's what will happen. If I'm supposed to be walking with my wife, if I'm supposed to be walking together and we're supposed to be enjoying each other's company and enjoying each other's conversation and I'm walking so fast that I leave her behind, well, that's what happens when we begin to compromise. I'm over here doing what I want to do and God's going, hey, where where did you go? We're, we're, we're back over here. Why, come, come back, come back. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in two different places. As we come to verses 6 through 24, we're going to see some more opposition. Israel's faithful, but that has, that's no concern of their adversaries. If you're taking note, guys, we're going to discover three areas of opposition this, this evening. You go, what's that? Number one, we're going to see the, the area of, of false accusations. False accusations. Write that down. Another area of opposition is straight-out lies. Straight-out lies. And then the third, guess what the enemy does?
0: It brings up the past.
1: The enemy always does that. We'll see that it's going to bring up the past. That's where we pick up our story, guys, in verse 6. Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. It says, in the reign of the in the beginning of his reign, or Xerxes is, is another title for that, his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. If you're taking note, you can write next to this. This is going to be during the time of Queen Esther, okay? Just kind of keep that in mind. Now, here's what we can note. Between chapter 6 and 7, there's going to be a 58-year gap, which the events of the book of Esther take place. But this is going to be the very beginning. You go, well, what are they saying? Look what it says, guys. They wrote an accusation against those who returned to build the temple, and does not it always start with false accusations? You go, know, what do you mean? Well, the children of Israel, they're they're what? They're coming home to rebuild the foundation of the temple and later on the walls of the city. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy comes in and he gets them to compromise. So And so they wouldn't do it. And so what do they do? What's the next step? When you won't compromise your walk, they begin to start shooting you with false accusations false accusations. They write a letter to the king. They start complaining. We're going to see in this letter, they're going to what? They're going to bring up lies. They're going to bring up the past. And that's the first thing we can really, really, really grasp. Guys, the enemy is going to do this. It's going to bring up false accusations about you. It's going to, that's, that's what the enemy does. You go, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible have to say about false accusations? Well, let me give you a quote first and then we'll jump into some verses, okay? A clear conscience laughs at a false accusation. A clear conscience laughs at a false accusation. If you have a clear conscience, the enemy can come up and go, Well, you're not, and you're and you're this and you did it, and you know what? Listen, I'm I am clean before my God. I'm clean before my God. But what does the Bible say? Well, we know here's what Peter writes, guys. If you're taking note, Peter writes this in First Peter through 16. He says, having a good conscience, what for? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What does that mean? What does that mean? Peter says, guys, listen, when you walk and you're going to walk with Jesus, there are going to be others who don't like you and they're going to slander your name and your character. And now it may start off real small, right? It may start off like, well, she thinks she's all holier than that. She goes to church on Wednesday. But then it could get really ugly, couldn't it? It can get really ugly. Because what Peter says, he goes, guys, we need to have a clear conscience so that when, not if, when they, what, slander you. When they slander you. And when they, what, I mean, and and those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Well, that's what Peter says, and what what does Matthew say? Well, Matthew, in chapter 5, verse 11, says this, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see? That's exactly what the enemy is going to do. They're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to what? They're going to say all kinds of evil things against you. Church, we've got to be on guard. We've got to be on guard. We've we we've got to we've got to make sure we we got to know the enemy's M.O. because he's going to come and he's going to he's going to start shooting false accusations and all kinds of false. Oh, did you see? And I mean, it might be as simple as I mean you. Who knows what the enemy does, but I'll tell you what he wants to do. He wants to, more than anything, guys, get the body of Christ to turn on each other. He wants us to start looking and go, well, did you see? I, I went up and I was talking to so-and-so, and they were just, they rolled their eyes at me, and they just didn't pay attention. And I can't believe, and I mean, I don't even know if they're a Christian. And we—and what do we do, guys? Where we, he wants to he wants to get us to turn, and that's not what God has called us to do. You know what He's called us to do? He's called us to love each other, and He's called us to build each other up. But blessed are you when you're reviled and they persecute you. Blessed are you. That's a tough one, isn't it, Church? I'm not sure. I jumped up and said, "Woohoo! I've been persecuted." Usually, I'm like, "Leave me alone." You know, I'm just. I mean. It's a psalmist who said in Psalm thirty-nine, nineteen and 20, says, do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. Do not, they do not speak peaceably, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. What are those children of Israel doing? What are they doing? They're going to cause rebellion. I can't believe this. They're not really going to worship God. False accusations. One area of attack, obviously, churches through what? False accusations. Now, let's jump into our text. There's a lot of guys here. I'm pretty much going to butcher their names. I mean, it's just like, but um it says here, verse 7, In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlem, Mithridath, Tabal and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. So this letter is actually written in Aramaic, okay? So when somebody comes up to you and says, was the Bible written in Hebrew? It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and what? Very good, right? So we know a couple... Let's see, where are my Bible students here? Where's the other place in Scripture... That it was written in Aramaic. I knew she'd get it. She, yep, in the book of Daniel, right? In the book of Daniel, A plus, A plus, verse eight. Rahum, the commander of Shimshai, who the scribe who wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion, from Rahum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions. Representatives of the Danites, the, and I don't know what these guys, the, the, yeah, I'm not even going to try that. The Tar, Tarpalites, and the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Sushan, and the, the Havites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble O Snapper, that's a pretty cool one though. It could be all snapper vessels. Anyway, he took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. Now, here's what's really funny, right? Every time, in in, in the next few days, he's going to always say, and so forth, and so forth, and, and so forth. Now, here's the letter they wrote. You guys ready? Here's the letter, verse 11. And this is a copy of the letter sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. <laughs> like they, they didn't even want to name the rest of the guys. They're like, yeah, you know, and, and there's a bunch of us guys. Yeah. Anyways, so forth, so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come us to us at Jerusalem and they are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Now, here's what I want you to see. If you have a pencil handy, guys, right next to this verse, in verse 12, you can write lies. Lies. Do you see the letter? This is straight up, they're straight up lying, right? Listen, hey, king, hey, hey, listen, the guys, the the people, the the Israelites, well, they're over here, and, and what were they doing, church? They were just rebuilding what? The the foundation of the temple, they're going to rebuild. Why? They've been gone for 70 years. Nobody's touched the ruins, and now that they come back, they write a letter right away, and they're like, um, guess what? They're, re- they're building the rebellious and evil city, and they're finishing the walls. Have they even started the walls? They hadn't even started the walls, had they? These are lies. These are lies. Let's finish the, the letter, and we'll talk a little bit about lies, right? He says, let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls are completed, guess what, king? They will, pay, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom in the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. And a search may be made of the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and to know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and they have incited sedation within the city in former times. For which cause this city was destroyed? We informed the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. If you're taking notes, guys, this letter is full of lies. Lies. This would be the second area of attack. They're straight up lying. You go, what are they lying about? Well, did you guys, first and foremost, they're lying to the king that they're building a rebellious and evil city. Okay, nowhere in, as it ever mentioned, that, that Israel would be rebellious. But I will say this to you. Fast forward to 2017. It's the same type of lies that you will hear in the news about Israel that's going on today. Oh, you can't go to Israel. And, and I mean, guys, we've been to Israel. We have seen, we have been to Jerusalem. And there's still a war going on with lies towards Israel, towards Jerusalem. There's lies. You go, what were they lying about? Well, not only that, but notice what they say. Here's what they're lying. They are saying, listen, they're not going to pay taxes or tribute or no custom. As a matter of fact, there's going to be no money for the king. That's a lie. That's a lie, right? Listen, Not only is the enemy going to come against you with a false accusation, but he's going to come out with bold-faced lies. Lies about you. Oftentimes, I think, I mean, you can just sit here for a moment and think some of the lies that the enemy, you know, has, has used against you. But I remember what Jesus told us. Do you guys remember what Jesus told us? He was talking to he was talking to the Pharisees in John chapter eight verse forty four, and he says, You are the father of the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. Guess who he is? He's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Why? Because he's a liar and he's the father of it. So where do the lies come from? They come from the father of lies. The devil will never tell you the truth, will he? He's going to lie. And that's the second opposition we're going to get when we want to follow Jesus. You go, well, what? Give Give me an example. You know what the biggest lie the devil tells us? You go, what are they? Well, the biggest one in my life is that he often comes and he says, if God loves you, then you wouldn't be going through this, 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 and this. If God really, if God is love and God really loved you, then you should not be experiencing any type of suffering or pain or setback or anything else. Anybody with me? Right? What's another lie he gives us? You know, if God loves you. But another lie is, his biggest lie is he wants to get us to doubt who God is. Who God is? He's the father of lies. He wants us to doubt that we that he really loves us and that he has a plan for our lives. But then he wants to doubt. I mean, he he tries to get us. He goes, "Let me why you. Well, in your minds, guys, where is the one place that he attacks first and foremost? Genesis one one. Why? Because if he can create doubt." Through lying through Genesis one one in the beginning what God created the heavens if he can if he can destroy that, then the rest of the Bible has no what no foundation. so where does he go? Was there really intelligent design you know, or did it all happen through evolution? Will you decide right but think about this right i saw I saw a meme today it was two two snowmen talking to each other. And they basically said, we have a creator, right? And the other one said, no, I thought we were built this way by random snowflakes just falling. And that's the same thing. That's the same thing, right? There, the, the Two snowmen weren't created by just random snowflakes falling on the ground. There had to be a creator. And that's what the enemy wants to do. Why? He's the father of lies. When he wants to attack us, guys, in our walks with God, don't be surprised when they're bold-faced lies. The third thing is that he also brings up the past. How many of you in this room have done everything super right? You're like, man, that's silly. (laughs) I haven't done anything right. Are you kidding me? And that's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to pinpoint those areas in your life where you failed. And he wants to remind you of that. And that's what he does here, right? He wants to what? He wants to discourage you. Look at verse 15 with me real quick. Notice he says, he says, guys, go search. Make a search in the book of the records of your fathers. Go back. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to find in the book that the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and providences. And so, notice, and they have incited sedition within the city in former times, which was the cause for the city. The city was destroyed. And so it happens when our enemy brings up the past. Here's what he likes to do. He says, go back into the past on how we used to live, the things that we're not proud of, right? So he'll come back and he goes, hey, let me remind you. Oh, you're you're a believer now. <laughs> really? You're a Christian. What about last week? What about last year? What about when you and, and, and guys, we're human and we sin and we blow it. And we have bad attitudes and we you know, and, and, and we just we don't do and I mean, there. But, but here's the point. The enemy will often bring up your past to try to discourage you. Try to discourage you. No, pastor, what should I do? Well, let me give you seven verses. Let me give you good seven verses to help you, get, help you get past your past. Seven verses, okay? We won't spend a whole lot of time, but number one, guys, repent from your past mistakes. Repent from your past mistakes. Uh, Psalm 51, verse four says, against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified, and justified when you judge. Guys, that's exactly it. There's no one person. You go, amen. How many of you have sinned? Amen. Okay. Well, here's the first thing. You want to get past your past? You want to to let go of that? Repent from those mistakes. Okay. I, I accept it. I accept responsibility, and I repent. What's the second thing I need to do, Pastor? Receive forgiveness for your past mistakes. Receive forgiveness. Hebrews 8, 12 says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's what God says about you. Okay, you ready for the test? When the enemy comes up and brings that part of your past to discourage you, you know what you say? Ready? You look at him, you go, well, what are you talking about? What are you talking <laughs> Yeah, you remember when you did. What are you talking about? I don't, Why? Because the Lord says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So what do we do? Well, let me say this, and not to get Dr. Phil on you in any way, shape, or form, but have you really forgiven yourself for the things that you've done? If God has forgiven you, have you forgiven yourself? Have you really said, listen, (laughs) I'll tell you why, guys, if we can get serious in church for a moment. Because we're really good at forgiving others, but we are horrible at forgiving ourselves. We sort of in our in our own way want to penalize ourselves, want to want to beat ourselves up, if you will. So we can justify some of the stuff that we've done and, and, and that just leads to guilt. And here's what I'm telling you. If the God of the universe sent his son to forgive you, why are you holding on to that stuff yourself? Number three. Resist dwelling on past mistakes. It's Isaiah 43 and 18. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Yeah, pastor, but you don't understand. No, 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 no. Here's what I'm saying. Resist dwelling on them. They're done. They're done. And here's the problem, guys. The problem is that our past wants to... It wants to engulf us so that we have no future, so that we can't be used for God, and we need to not dwell there. You need to break camp. You need to get out of there, and you need to move forward. Here's what I'm telling you: all you have is today. Tomorrow's not ours, is it? All you have is today, church. Let me say this: I'm going to get off. I'm going to get off base here. For, let me just say this, please. Let's live our lives with no regrets. Let's live our lives with no regrets, man. If you happen to be 80, 90, 100 years old, and you're on your deathbed, and you're taking your final breaths, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go, man, I lived it full for him. No regrets. No regrets. Number four. Reach toward your calling instead of focusing on your past mistakes. Reach toward your calling. Philippians tells us this. Paul says this. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind and straining forward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're going to reach toward the goal, guys. Reach toward your calling. You need to stop and you need to ask yourself, what am I called to do? What am I called to do? Number five. Number five. Renew your relationship with God from your past mistakes. Renew your relationship. What do you mean? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 51.10, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew that relationship. Number six. Remember your cleansing from your past mistakes. Right? Second Peter one, eight and nine, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective or unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Just remember that. You go, what do you mean? What do you mean? Guys, when the when when the enemy brings up your past, you go, <laughs> I'm clean. I'm clean. What did you do? I didn't do anything. Jesus did. I'm clean. Well, do you remember what you did? I I'm sorry. I I don't remember. Yeah, you remember when you acted a fool? Mm, well, I probably acted a fool, but I don't remember. Why? Because I'm clean. I'm clean before my Lord. Number seven. Number seven. Reflect on God's goodness towards You, in spite of your past mistakes, reflect on God's goodness towards you. Psalm 25 and 7 says, Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. That is good towards you. That is good towards you. Now, guys, we're going to finish up this chapter real quick. Okay, We're going to close with the response to the letter. Okay, so we know, here's here's the opposition, okay? The opposition is false accusations. The opposition is lies and then bringing up your past. So they write this letter and in verse 17 it says, So the king sent an answer, right? To Raham, the commander to... Simshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. (laughs) The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command to search, I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. They have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled all over the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men stop that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should the damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now, when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Raham, Shemeshai the scribe, and the companions went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews by by force of arms made them cease. Look at verse 24. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year in the reign of Darius the king of Persia. Guys, if you have a pencil handy, it says that the work stopped for 15 years. 15 years. Here's what I love about the Lord. There may be times in our walks when when the enemy seems to have won. Fifteen years, they they just, listen, listen, we just can't. You know, we came and, and we've had these false accusations and we have this opposition. Here's the application for us, guys. We need to keep moving forward. We need to keep moving forward. Don't let the work stop in your life because of what the enemy has tried to do. Don't let the work stop. 15 years, again, listen, they've let it lay in ruins for 70 years. They were in captive. They are in bondage. And now because of a letter and because of false accusation, because opposition, they're going, okay, for 15 years. You go, well, pastor, what should we do when it comes to opposition? You guys remember, let us consider the vine. You see, the vine is as safe as And is strong to that which it clings. You go, what should I do? We need to be a vine clinging to Christ. That's what we need to do. You go, who are you holding on to? Hold on to the Lord. Opposition comes, hold on to the Lord. Your strength comes from the Lord. Is opposition going to come? Yep. Is there going to be false accusations? At times. But our trust, our trust is in the living God. Hold on. Cling to God. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and the truth in your word. We thank you for your great love. We worship you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.